Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you so much that you um, do not keep yourself from us, that instead you show us who you are, your character, your will, your truth through the, the word. And so we just pray this morning that our hearts would be humbled, that our eyes would be open, and that you would just speak to us through um, your word this morning, that we may know and love you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Life Church. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is James Sharp. I'm one of the elders and a pastor on the staff here. Um, that was Kristen Sharp, my wife, my better half. And uh, I asked her to read the word of the Lord for us this morning, really for two reasons. Um, first, uh, I was fearful that some of you would begin to think that she was merely a figment of my imagination. Um, I was here for a while in November, and she wasn't here with me, so I was flying solo then, and um, when we got here in January, the Sunday that I was installed here, she was at home with a sick child, and so some of you were really wondering, is, is Kristen even exist? And from my perspective, she is too good to be true, um, but she is real, like she's not my imaginary friend, and so now you have some measure of proof that that is in fact the case 
Uh, when I was interviewing here, um, I told your staff and your elders that the people of the church in which I used to serve, um, that they learned very quickly to like and or tolerate me, but to love Kristen. And all I can say to you is that I can't wait for the day when you like and or tolerate me and love Kristen, and we're eager to see that come. Um, the second reason I wanted her to read, and, and this is the real reason, to be honest, um, is because uh, the passage that we're in this morning is one of the rare passages in Scripture that features only female characters. Um, we'll talk about gender and the role that it plays in the book of Ruth and in the Bible as a whole in the weeks ahead, um, so I'm not going to go there too much today, but we can acknowledge, I think fairly safely, that the Bible is sort of a dude-centric book, meaning that most of the characters of significance happen to be dudes. There are some females of great significance, but they're fewer and farther between. And to my knowledge, this is the only story in the Bible that features only significant female characters and no male characters whatsoever. There are four characters in the book, or in the story that we read this morning, at least. There's Naomi. We met Naomi last week. She is the now widowed former wife of a man from Bethlehem in Judah named Elimelech. Um, we read at the very beginning of Ruth that there was famine in the land of Bethlehem in Judah, and so Elimelech took his wife and his two sons, Malan and Kilian, and they left Bethlehem and went to a place called Moab, where presumably there was no famine. There they found food, but they also found grief. Um, Elimelech died in Moab. Naomi, now left to kind of fend for herself and her sons, married her sons to two Moabite women. One was named Orpah, the other named Ruth. But then tragedy struck again, and Naomi's sons, they also died. Malan and Kilian died in Moab. And so as we kind of wrapped up the opening scene of the book of Ruth last week, we left Naomi on the fields of Moab, having grieved through three funerals, stuck with two Moabite daughters-in-law who, frankly, she, she doesn't really seem to want at all, and kind of broken and hopeless and looking for a future. That's where we pick up the story this morning as we begin to study again the book of Ruth. We see in verse 6, as Kristen read, that the story kind of moves forward because Naomi hears that the Lord in his grace has visited his people in Bethlehem, meaning he's lifted the famine, right? Rains have come again. There is food and harvest again in Bethlehem. And so Naomi endeavors to return home to Bethlehem. She returns with her daughters-in-law, or at least she begins to return with her daughters-in-law. And what I want to show you this morning is that that idea of return is really the theme or the motif of this part of the chapter, um, the, the Hebrew word for return, it actually appears 12 times in the 16 verses of this part of the chapter. And so it's clearly the main idea. And we're supposed to really envision that the whole story here in this part of the chapter is playing out between two cities. So it's a tale of two cities. Whatever city in Moab, Naomi and her daughters-in-law have been living in, and then the city of Bethlehem. And according to verse 6, they leave that city in Moab, and they're on their way. They're returning back to Bethlehem when all of this plays out. And so let's just trace that theme of returning through the story. Verse 6, Naomi arises with her daughters-in-law to return 
from the country of Moab because she knows there's food in Bethlehem. Verse 7, she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they were on the way to return to the land of Judah. So again, this is happening during the journey, everything else that happens in the story. Verse 8, but Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return, each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Now we'll see this a couple of times. Naomi, in her response to the fact that her two Moabite daughters-in-law are following her back to Bethlehem, she's very practical. Or she's a pragmatist, maybe we would say. She's just thinking reasonably, where's the best place for you, daughters-in-law, to find rest? to find protection, to find shelter. That's not going to be in Bethlehem in Judah. In Bethlehem in Judah, it's going to be very difficult for you, two Moabite widows, to find husbands. Surely you would be better off in your home, in your mother's houses, where somebody can arrange another marriage for you and you can have rest. But initially, at least, both Ruth and Orpah protest. They say in verse 10, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, she's persistent, turn back. So literally she says, return, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that that they may become your husbands? Turn back, return, she says again, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And so again, Naomi, her instructions to her daughters-in-law is just simple. Be reasonable. Be practical. Do you think I'm going to produce sons that you can marry? She's not married herself. Even if she did, it would take some number of years before those sons were ready to marry Ruth and Orpah, if she could even have them to begin with. And so Naomi is just saying very practically to her daughters-in-law, turn back, turn back, return to Moab. And according to verse 14, she wears down one of her two daughters-in-law. They lifted their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back. She has literally returned to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth, she is, in this passage, beautifully and wonderfully persistent and loyal. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now, those are surely the most famous words from the book of Ruth. Um, They're famously adopted and adapted in wedding ceremonies even, which 
strikes me as a little bit odd given the fact that the original context is a profession of loyalty from a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law. I put my feelings for my mother-in-law in a different category than my feelings for my wife. And so using those words at a wedding, that always seems a little bit odd to me. But if you did it, it's okay. I love you. It is a beautiful sentiment of commitment and covenant and loyalty. Ruth says, where you go, I will go. I will follow you. Where you lodge, I will lodge. I will make your place my place, in other words. Your people, they're going to be my people. Your God, they're going to be my God. So this is an expression not only of love and loyalty for Naomi, but also for Naomi's people and for the God of Naomi's people, the true living God of the Bible. But then this is the most radical thing because as we think about it, Ruth's commitment to Naomi, it's actually more radical than the commitment we make in marriage. Now, the commitment we make in marriage, it's, it's pretty radical. We say, you know, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. In other words, we're totally committed all in to one another until one of us dies and then that commitment is over. But that's not what Ruth says to Naomi. She says, where you are buried, there I will be buried. And so in other words, even after Naomi kicks the bucket, Ruth is going to remain committed to all of the other parts of this commitment. She's going to remain committed to Naomi's people and to Naomi's God and to Naomi's place. And so she's going to stay there until she dies too, and she's buried there too as well. It's a greater or more radical than marriage kind of commitment that Ruth makes to Naomi. And so though Orpah returns to Moab, Ruth, with Naomi, returns to Bethlehem. When they do, verse 19 tells us that the whole town gets stirred up. And here's the fourth character in the story, also a female character. It's all the women of the town of Bethlehem speaking as one voice. They're they're flared up and they say, is this Naomi? In verse 20, Naomi answers them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now Naomi's making a play on words here. Maybe the footnote in your Bible shows you this. The word Naomi, the name Naomi, it means pleasant in the Hebrew language. The name Mara means bitter. And so Naomi is saying, don't call me pleasant. Given everything that's happened, I'm not pleasant. I'm bitter. Call me Mara, she says. Verse 21, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? You can just hear the edge in Naomi's words there, the the bitterness and the brokenness and the frustration that is real to her. The narrator sums up, verse 22, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Just a little hint there of the good work that the Lord is doing even in the hard events of this chapter. As we'll see in the weeks ahead, the Lord is doing something mighty and wonderful in the life of this broken widow from Bethlehem and in the life of her widowed daughter-in-law. We'll see that in the weeks ahead. It's hinted at here. And now. Now it's critical to remember as we think about the book of Ruth, the big picture of the story. In fact, if you were with us last week, that's where we started. 
We covered the very opening scene, but then we went all the way to the end because this is one of those stories where it's important to read the beginning and the middle in light of where the story is ultimately headed. And so if you weren't with us last week, I'd even commend you to like find that online and go back and listen to it just as we considered together the, the big narrative sweep of this story and what it's really all about. We said that the book of Ruth is really all about establishing the family line of King David. All of this happens, death, famine, everything else, so that the Lord can move in the lives of these people to establish the lineage of King David. And of course, we care about that because the main reason King David is significant is because it's through his family line that the Lord ultimately worked to establish King Jesus. And so that's why we see that the book of Ruth is very relevant even to our lives today because this is the story of what God has done to save us. It's the story of how he worked in human history to provide a savior for his people, his son, Jesus. That's, that's the big picture of the book of Ruth. And we can't move off of that picture. We can't forget it. We need to weigh everything that we see here in chapter one in light of that big picture. But that doesn't mean that we can't also be helped by pausing to consider some of the smaller pictures that we encounter along the way. In the book of James, James calls scripture, the word of God, he says reading it is like looking in a mirror. And what he means is that when we look in scripture, we see glimpses of ourselves. We can learn about the condition of our own hearts. We can learn about our own struggles and our own triumphs. We can learn about our own strengths and our own weaknesses. And so what I'd like us to do today is we think about these three very significant female characters. I'll I'll leave the women of Bethlehem until we come back to them again in chapter four. But as we think about these three significant characters, Orpah, Naomi, and Ruth, I just wonder, what of ourselves can we see in them? Like, what can we glimpse in them that reveals to us the condition of our hearts or the direction we hope that our lives might go? And so let's look at each of them for a few minutes today with the time we have left. I'll start with Orpah. In Orpah, we see a number of things, but I'll I'll point us especially to the fact that we see in Orpah today a picture of an almost Christian. Now, for what it's worth, in verse 14, when Orpah weeps and then kisses Naomi and then leaves to return to Moab, that's it for her. Like, we never see her name again in Scripture. We never hear about her. She does not make the annals of recorded history again. So that's it. We don't know what happens to Orpah and in her life. But I think even in the really limited piece of the story that Orpah does occupy, we can see in her a glimpse of somebody who almost gets it. A glimpse of somebody who almost comes to a saving knowledge of and relationship with the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. I mean, just think about Orpah's life for a minute. Um, She lived in the house of her husband, Killian, for 10 years before Killian died. And I'm gonna assume that the whole time she lived in the house of her husband, Killian, she was living just down the street from her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi just seems like that kind of mother-in-law to me, the kind that would live just down the street from you. But I'm going to assume that in those 10 years, Orpah heard about the God of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. I'm going to assume that in those 10 years, 
or if I heard the stories of that God parting the Red Sea and saving his people from slavery in Egypt, I'm going to assume that in the time that Orpah lived with Kilian and near Naomi, she heard stories about God with his mighty hand bringing his people through the wilderness and into the promised land. I'm going to assume that in those 10 years, Orpah heard the stories of the true and living God of the Bible. If she hadn't heard those stories, why else would she leave Moab in the first place? We need to remember that. She left Moab. She went on the journey towards Bethlehem, at least initially. She wanted to go to the place where the God of Israel, his people, lived. She wanted to go to the place that the God of Israel had given to his people as a part of their covenant relationship with him. She was intrigued by those things. She, she had heard the stories, and she was moved by them. So she was going to Bethlehem. But then as Naomi started to talk to her about what her life was going to be like in Bethlehem, about what Naomi thought it would really look like for her, but to live in this place where Moabites were not welcome, to live in a place where it would be very difficult for this Moabite widow to ever find a husband, well, then Orpah decided that the cost of going to Bethlehem was just too great. And so she turned back and she went home. She began the journey, but she didn't finish the journey. The prospect of life in Bethlehem with no husband and no family It was a price that she just wasn't willing to pay. And I pray today that none of us would be described that way. I pray that none of us would be people who start down the road of following our Lord, but turn back halfway because we come to realize that the price of the journey is too great. I pray that none of us would start, but fail to finish a life of discipleship. Now, Jesus actually said that there would be many people like that. Most famously on this topic, he told a parable called the parable of the sower. In the parable of the sower, there's a farmer who sows seed in different kinds of soil, and that seed represents the word of God. And Jesus talks about that seed, the word of God, falling on rocky places. And he says, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. They stay on the road to Bethlehem for a while, in other words. Then, when the cost is too great, when the tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And I just pray this morning that you would Ask yourself and and be honest with yourself. Like, does that describe me? Am I still today faithfully following Jesus? Is the word of God growing deep roots in me so that I can endure? Is the word of God bearing visible fruit in me? As I look at my life, do I look like a person who has been changed and who is continuing to be changed in light of the gospel? Or is the cost of following Jesus maybe just a little bit too high for me? Am I willing to follow him all the way home? Or have I been tempted to move in a different direction? Maybe not to head back to where I came from, but just to head out on my own way rather than on the way of the Lord. And the reason I I wanted to pause and, and labor over this for a minute today is because 
I do think that some of us walk through life with a deficient understanding of what happens when we're converted. We have a deficient understanding of conversion itself. Now, maybe that's not a word that like rattles around in your brain all that often. Um, conversion is a reality that every single one of us needs. And that's a reality because every single one of us is born into the world sinful, and none of us are born into the world already as members of God's family. You know, nobody's born a Christian. Right? It doesn't matter if you're one of those people who your parents were dragging you into the church building when you were three days old in your little infant carrier, and you've sat through more sermons by the time you were 18 than you really cared to remember. It doesn't matter if like every waking hour that the church building was open, you were there as a child, and it doesn't matter if you made a decision for Jesus as a child. Like Maybe it was a room like this, and you went forward, or you raised your hand, and someone prayed a sinner's prayer with you, or maybe you even made a public profession of faith through the ordinance of baptism. Maybe you did all of those things. But my point to you is that all of those things are irrelevant if you don't continue to walk on that decision to the very end. Like all of those decisions mean nothing if you fail to finish in line with those decisions. And of course, God can and does use the decisions we make as young children. I'm gonna pray so fervently for my own children that they would make decisions at a young age to follow the Lord that they would be spared the grief of walking through trial and hardship in order to come to know him. I pray that the Lord would save the trial and hardship until after they know him and are secure in his love for them and his grace for them. So God can and does use the decisions we make as very young people. But if your entire Christian life seems to be defined by that one decision you made way back then, like if every evidence you would offer as to why you are a Christian today points backward like that and doesn't point to anything that's happening in your life right now, then I fear you have a deficient understanding of what it really means to become a Christian. I fear your, your understanding and your application of your understanding of conversion needs help. Those who are truly Christ's those who truly trust in and rest in the saving grace of Christ and who surrender to his lordship, they follow Christ all the way home. Orpah did not. She didn't endure the journey, the cost of it, the toil of it. It became too great for her. Will it be too great for you? Or will you follow Jesus until you are home? I pray that you will. I pray that we would not be like Orpah. She gives us a picture of an almost Christian. Naomi gives us a picture of what I'm going to call a nearsighted Christian. Let me explain what I mean. Naomi makes some very strong theological statements in this chapter. She says some things about God that are real and bold, and, and maybe you would even say harsh. For example, at the end of verse 13, when she's talking to Ruth and Orpah, she says that it is exceedingly bitter for her because the hand of the Lord has gone out against her. She says, God's hand, it's against me. It doesn't seem like God is for me. It seems like God is against me because his hand is against me. 
And maybe we would write that off if that was the only place where she said something like that, but it's not. She says in verse 20, she says, the almighty God has dealt very bitterly with me. Right? His, the way he deals with Naomi, it does not seem to her to be kindness and love and grace. It seems to be bitter because his hand has been heavy in her life. Verse 21, she says, the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me, she says. Now, in Naomi's mind, God and no one else is responsible for the pain and the tragedy and the affliction that she endures in this story. In Naomi's mind, God and no one else is sovereign over the events of her life and over the affairs of all people. In Naomi's mind, the pain that she has endured and faced in this story, it is not the result of bad luck or chance, and it's not merely the the natural consequence of life in a fallen world. No, in Naomi's mind, the pain that she has endured, it is the result of God's deliberate and sovereign will and plan for her life. And I want to say to you this morning that Naomi is right, but she's only half right when it comes to that. And she's only half right because Naomi is, theologically speaking, nearsighted. She can't see clearly. She can't see the full picture. She can only see what is right in front of her face. God has caused pain in Naomi's life without doubt. She is not wrong to say that. God has caused trial in her life. She is not wrong to say that. What Naomi doesn't see is that God did not bring pain and trial into her life to afflict her. He brought pain and trial into her life to discipline her. Now, how can I say that? I can say that because if we look all the way back at the beginning, we realize that this whole thing started with famine in the land of Bethlehem in Judah. Now, when we think about famine... We want to explain that like naturally or using science. And so we might think, oh man, there's famine in Bethlehem because they didn't plant the seed at the right time or they didn't cultivate the ground properly or they used the wrong kind of hybrid fertilizer or whatever. Um, By the way, I pastored in Nebraska for a number of years. I have all sorts of lame farmer jokes that I could make right now, but I love y'all too much. So I'm gonna spare you those lame farmer jokes. They would have killed in Nebraska, I know, but I'm not gonna do that here. Um, but we want to explain famine the way that a farmer would explain famine, right? The farmer would say, yeah, the, the rains didn't come at the right time or enough of them. Or maybe it was too much rain. We would, we would come up with all of these reasons why we might explain the famine. And we would do that using science and nature and things like that. But the Old Testament would have us explain famine theologically, not scientifically. What do I mean? Well, Bethlehem and Judah, it's in the promised land. The land that God promised to give Abraham hundreds of years before he finally brought his people into that land. And God told his people that it would be an abundant land, a land flowing with milk and honey. You might remember in Numbers when the 12 spies, they spy out the land. They say that. They say that it's flowing with milk and honey, which is just the weird Old Testament way of saying, this is a good land, right? There's no famine there. It's the kind of land where you can grow crops and you'll have a bountiful harvest. It's the kind of land that we should go and inhabit. And that's the way God intended it. But God intended the land to be a representation of his covenant relationship with his people. 
And so as long as his people remained faithful to their covenant with him, then God would faithfully bring bountiful harvests in the promised land. But the second God's people started to stray from their covenant relationship with him, God would cease to send bountiful harvest. And instead, Deuteronomy says that he'll dry up the sky so the sky will be hard and the ground will have no fruit, no crops. God says that's a direct relationship of his people's failure to walk in faithfulness in the covenant with him. Now, Naomi, she's, she's a good Old Testament follower of the Lord. She knows her Old Testament. She knows Deuteronomy. She should have seen when famine arose in the land of Bethlehem that the cause of that was not random. It wasn't science. It wasn't good or bad agronomy. It was the Lord's discipline. See, the Lord was causing pain in Naomi's life and in the lives of her people because he was trying to get their attention. He was trying to call them back to him. He was trying to awaken them to their need to repent and to return to him. God was using pain in the lives of his children because that's what a loving father does when his children need to learn something. We have four kids. My youngest son, Carson, is seven years old. And of all my children, um, he's my favorite. Please don't tell the others I said that. I'm kidding. Um, But Carson is, uh, my favorite word to describe Carson is the word formidable. And I use that word because he is a determined, strong-willed, and relentless young man. When he sets his mind to something it is very difficult to like, talk him out of it, and he just has the energy and the drive to get it done. And so when Carson determines that he's going to do something, usually that something happens. Um, imagine how I would respond if, as I was driving home from work one day and I pulled into the house, I saw that Carson was up on top of the roof and about to jump off of the roof onto the trampoline, which is the kind of thing that Carson would try to do. I'm just telling you now. Um, imagine how I would respond to that. Now, I don't know what kind of parent you are, but as a loving father, I think my responsibility would be to throw my body in front of that, right? Like, it would need to, to stop Carson from jumping off of the roof onto the trampoline because he will surely hurt himself. I can see his little tiny body, you know, like flying back up into the heavens and then disappearing or something. But So, you know, maybe I wouldn't have to work very hard to persuade Carson that jumping off the roof onto the trampoline is a bad idea. Maybe all I would need to do would be to show him pictures of children with like broken backs or something like that, and he would say, okay, I won't do that. But perhaps, remember, Carson, he's formidable. Perhaps that wouldn't be enough. And so perhaps in order to persuade Carson that what he's doing is foolish, I would need to wake him up to that reality by disciplining him severely. You know, maybe I would need to inflict some real pain in Carson's life in order to persuade him that what he is doing is a foolish thing to do. Now, that would be loving of me, wouldn't it? Like, that would be the, the kind, generous grace of a loving father in his son's life, even though if he only looked right here, Carson would interpret that as pain. But that's how the Lord loves us, because that's what a good father does. And when a good father sees that his children are straying, he brings pain into their life, not to punish them, but to correct them. And that pain, that hurt, 
It's an expression of what one author, I love it, what one author called the Lord's severe mercy. When he brings hard things into our lives to shake us, to wake us up, to help us understand that we need him, and that we need to turn from whatever foolish way we're going in. C.S. Lewis famously talked about pain being God's megaphone to get our attention. He said, this is famous, but it's just so appropriate. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so you can see famine in Bethlehem and dead husband, dead son, another dead son. You can see all of that pain as God just trying to grab Naomi lovingly by the shoulders and shake her so she wakes up. She doesn't see that. She's nearsighted. She can only see the pain. But if she could see the big picture, she would understand not only that God is doing something incredible in this story, and he is, but that God is doing something for her to tune her heart for him, to awaken her to her need to come back to him and to live in right relationship with him. Pain, it is often in our lives an expression of the severe mercy of God. Now, I do need to point out that not all pain means the Lord is disciplining us. Right? Not every time trial comes in your life is that an expression of the Lord's loving discipline. And if we need proof of that, all we need to think about is the cross of Jesus Christ. There on the cross, the only man who never needed discipline from the Lord endured the worst pain that the world can imagine. And so we can't draw a straight line between our pain and discipline from God every single time. Don't hear me saying that. But when we experience pain, we should pause and we should ask the Lord, and we should, we should be honest with ourselves. And I think even we should lean into Christian community and ask other people who are wise, whom we love and whom we trust, to speak to the possibility that the pain we are enduring in our lives is an instrument of the Lord's severe mercy in his attempt to wake us up, to get our attention, to teach us something. We need to consider that God might be doing that. We need to have that kind of vision the kind of vision that Naomi, at least at this point in the story, doesn't yet have. So Orpah, she's a picture of an almost Christian. Naomi, she's a picture of a nearsighted Christian. And what about Ruth? I saved Ruth for last because we're going to talk about her a lot in the weeks to come still. There's a lot more that we're going to see in her character that we can learn from her character What do we make of Ruth today? I said earlier that James tells us that scripture, reading scripture can be like looking in a mirror, and that's true. I also think that often scripture is not a mirror, but rather it's a window through which we can gaze and behold the perfection and the beauty and the glory of the Lord himself. And I think surely that is the case with Ruth in her role in this part of the story. I mean, those famous words that Ruth said, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Now, I think it's, it's easy 
for us to sit here today and to get really convicted and to think, you know what, we need to, need to make a commitment to Jesus like that. I think it's easy. And actually, I, I think that I've been doing what I do long enough that I know how to stir us, to stir the room, to think that what we need most is conviction and commitment like that. That we need to make a commitment to the Lord that looks like Ruth's commitment to Naomi. I'm sure that if I were to apply my efforts over the next five to ten minutes, that we could walk out of here with that in mind. That we could say, yes, we need to be committed to Jesus like that. And you know, frankly, we do need to be committed to Jesus like that. That's not wrong. But I don't think what we need most today is to be convicted that our commitment to the Lord needs to be greater. I think what we need most today is to be reminded that the Lord's commitment to us is greater than our commitment to him. What we need to remember most today is the fact that Jesus loves us like Ruth loves Naomi far more than we love Jesus like Ruth loves Naomi. And so the picture that Ruth gives us is not of the covenant-keeping love that we should have for the Lord, but of the Lord's covenant-keeping love for us. I mean, just think about it this way. Like, if we were to work really hard to, to get stirred up to make a commitment to Christ in this space, if that were to be our goal right here, right now, like, how long really do you think that commitment would last? Like, if I were able to say something that would move you to resolve, to center your life around the beauty and glory of Jesus, how long would that resolve last us? I mean, do you really think that we would sing the entire last song without getting distracted? Do you really think that you'd make it out the doors of this room before your heart started to to drift in just a little bit of a different direction? And I'm not saying that you, like, you know, commit adultery before you leave the room, but your heart, like, it just starts to love something else a little bit more than it ought to. Your heart starts to treasure something else just a little bit more than it ought to. I mean, do you think you'd make it to your car before you started to get distracted from your new resolve to be committed to Jesus? And do you think you'd make it home before you raised your voice at one of your children or said something critical about your spouse? I mean, the simple truth is that we are prone to wander. We are broken people. And yes, we can make commitments to the Lord. Yes, we can resolve to walk in relationship with him. But because of our sin, because of our weakness, because of our brokenness, we're gonna break those commitments every single time. And so it doesn't help us to sit in here and think, man, yes, we need to be committed. No, what helps us, what helps us most is to be reminded that Jesus is committed to us. That Jesus loves us with a covenant-keeping love that is a more radical-than-marriage kind of commitment. It's a love that will last us beyond the grave. It's a loyalty that will never leave us or forsake us no matter how many times we blow up our covenant relationship with him. He is so faithful to us. Christ, the perfect, sinless Savior, he gave his life for his people 
while we were still his enemies, Scripture tells us. So he didn't wait for us to like get our act together and start to be in relationship with him before he gave himself for us. No, he gave himself for us when we were hopeless, when we had nothing, when we were weak, he died for the ungodly, Paul says in Romans 5. And he stays with his people no matter what. So he saved us when we were worthless, and he stays with us even when we're worthless. No matter how many times we wander from him, no matter how many times we break our covenant with him, he remains faithful to us, and he always brings us back home to fellowship with the Father. And I just wonder today, what would change in your life if you really believed that Jesus loves you and clings to you like Ruth loved and clung to Naomi? I mean, friends, how would that change the way that you pray? How would it change the way that you parent your kids? How would it change the way that you interact with your boss or your neighbor or the person who packs your groceries? If you knew at every moment of every day from now into eternity that Jesus was clinging to you like Ruth clung to Naomi, what would change in your life? Father, we pray that you would help us to believe that your commitment to us is as Jesus says that it is. We pray that we would believe that you have clung to us in covenant, steadfast love and that you desire to walk in relationship with us, a relationship that you will see to its very end, Lord. Help us to believe that. Help us to rest in that and to, to treasure the goodness of your grace and your mercy for us. And so, Lord, may we not be the person who starts and fails to finish. May we not be the almost Christian. May we not be the nearsighted Christian who fails to see the fullness of what you are doing in our lives. Instead, Lord, even when life is hard and we walk with pain, may we recognize that you can use that pain for our good as an expression of your severe mercy and for your glory. And then may we walk every day, Lord, not in our strength, not in our power, but in our weakness, recognizing that Jesus clings to us because of what he's done for us on the cross. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.